Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mabon, and today I'm joined by Joseph Daher. Joseph is a scholar at Lausanne University, a part time affiliate professor, and participates at the wartime and post conflict in Syria project at the European University Institute in Florence. He's the author of a range of articles and books, predominantly focusing on Syria and Hezbollah, including Syria After the Uprisings, The Political Economy of State Resilience, published by Pluto Press and Haymarket in 2019, and Hezbollah, The Political Economy of the Party of God, also published by Pluto Press. He's also the founder of the blog Syria Freedom Forever. Joseph, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation, Simon. I'm really looking forward to talking with you uh, about about the work that you've been doing, which is absolutely fascinating and and resonates with a lot of what we're doing in in Sepad, but perhaps from a slightly different angle. So, so Joe, can you tell us a little bit about about how you got interested in in Syria and the Middle East and political economy, please? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, so, first of all, I think it's. Um, I can say that I'm originally from Syria. Uh, I'm going back and forth with the region, although I live most of my life outside of the region, uh, mostly in Switzerland. But um, I've been involved academically and politically, especially in Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine for past a bit more than the past decade. I would say 15 years. So this is obviously my first interest being, you know, part of this uh, region and sure. feeling involved. Uh, and the developments that have been occurring for the past 20 years. And obviously, my uh, academic side, I wanted to be an academic and uh, wanted to study the region more deeply with a different um, <coughs> analysis, notably um, looking at the political economy of this region, but including in it uh, various aspects of it, such as uh, religious fundamentalism, sectarianism, um, imperialism, etc. So to have a, a global analysis of this region and to try to give a, a particular analysis. Sure, and I think it's it's something that you you certainly do well, and it's it's really interesting to get your your particular take on it. But Joe, can we go back to um, to something that you said? You said that you wanted to be an academic, and you'd wanted to be an academic. But but why? What was it about academia that that drew you in, rather than? The, the other hat that you wear, which is more of an activist hat. Indeed, I believe, uh, first of all, that we can do both while uh, remaining as most as possible, um, <clears throat> tackling the issues in very interesting aspects and uh, bringing, again, as I said, as I mentioned before, a particular analysis. Academic uh, allowed me to continue my research, my, my involvement in the region, until today, in a mostly independent way, I was able to, to continue to study, to, to, to analyze uh, this region, and to, and to try to, to help from my analysis to a better understanding uh, of this region, but also uh, trying to bring analysis also that allows maybe uh, progressive movements within the region uh, to use this kind of analysis uh, to advance certain interests. Sure. Was there a particular moment that that prompted this interest in academia, or indeed the interest in in activism? Um, I mean, uh, the first issue was definitely uh, the Palestinian issue, 
being involved in various uh, activities uh, around uh, Palestine's solidarity, but different events in my life uh, pushed me to, to deepen the study not only of Palestine, but of the region. Um, for example, the 2006 war in Lebanon, I was uh, staying in the country and I had to leave the country. Um, and um, most probably the biggest, uh, the most important um, element would be the, the, the beginning of the uprisings 2010 and 2011, which uh, touched the whole region, but most probably in my case, uh, Syria with catastrophic consequences, as you know, yeah. in terms of human lives, of displacement. Uh, my own family was uh, displaced, had to leave the country. So uh, these different type of events pushed me uh, to, to deepen my understanding of the region and to study uh, even more. And you chose to go down a, a particular route with your studies in terms of development politics and, and development studies rather than, than perhaps a more, a more broad politics or political economy route. Why was that? The, the focus on the political e economy allows me to have a more, I, I would say, inclusive uh, analysis understanding of the region, taking into account not only the, the economic side, I would say, but also the political one, which I think is not cannot be separated at all. It yeah. should be understood uh, together. Um, and also wanting to challenge uh, analysis that has been quite, um, I would say, um, uh, very, very existing regarding the Middle East when it comes to you know Arab exceptionalism or the Muslim exceptionalism, that is still very much current. Uh, that this region cannot be studied the same way as another region of the world, being Europe, uh, North America, South America, because uh, Arabs and or Muslim would have particular essentialist uh, features, which I totally oppose. Yeah. And in my perspective, it was important to show that the Middle East can be explained just as any other region in the world uh, through a materialist understanding uh, of events and developments in the region. Sure, and I think that that's certainly important to note, and it's it's a bugbear of many of the guests uh, <laughs> that have come on Sepad Pod that, that there's this idea that we can say that the Middle East is an exceptional region and that it's distinct from all others. So I think it, it's important to to really stress that. Joe, can you tell us a bit about your understanding of, of political economy before we delve deeper into into your work, just so that listeners are aware of of where you're sort of coming from intellectually, please. I understand the, the political economy or the analysis of political economy, the, this domain, as a way of understanding the, the society we live in through material eyes, materialist understanding of the societies with a key component being the, the, the capitalist system, but not only, not only to have an economist perspective, on, um, on countries, societies, uh, and other elements, but to understand how various elements of society have to be understood through the development uh, of the economic system in which we live in, which is today dominated by the capitalist system wherever we go throughout the world. So, therefore, this is my understanding of the political, political economy, analyzing the economic system in which we live in and how the developments uh, and uh, dynamics uh, are interlinked 
with this economic system. Sure. And I can certainly see why that would be appealing to, to understand the contemporary Middle East. And, and your work does a wonderful job of, of, of showing what, what all of this coming together can do to show and, and help us to understand contemporary dynamics. Um, can we talk about Hezbollah a little bit, Joe, if that's okay? Um, your, your first book, Hezbollah, The Political Economy of the Party of God, published by Pluto in, in 2016. What's, what's going on there then, please? What are you trying to do in that book? So the objective was to analyze Hezbollah in a, again, trying to do it in a different way. Hezbollah was characterized, I would say, by conservative academics, by a huge trend of academics, especially uh, in North America, as a terrorist uh, organization uh, that can only be understood through the prism of Islam, which I opposed completely and was very reductionist and cannot we cannot explain the developments and the dynamics and the behavior of Hezbollah by this kind of explanation. Similarly, you had another trend uh, presenting Hezbollah as just being institutionalized, uh, kind of a democratic party, and for some even <coughs> more extreme uh, academic trends that we could also find actually in um, in some political trends, uh, presenting um, Hezbollah as a reformist, anti-imperialist uh, political party. So I opposed these various understanding of Hezbollah and tried through this book to show that Hezbollah can first be analyzed just as any other political party throughout the world by looking at its political party, the uh, socio-economic developments of its elites, of its uh, cadres, of its popular basis, how it evolved through a political economy uh, prism, as I mentioned before, um, the way understanding allowed me to show the, the, the evolution of Hezbollah and why the political behavior of Hezbollah changed from the 80s to today, although there are also continuation in some aspects of, of its uh, political programs and others. So it's really to bring a new uh, view, a new understanding of Hezbollah and through it as well of what I call Islamic fundamentalist movement uh, in the region. Sure. So, so what does the political economy approach tell you about this then? What, why was there this evolution? Uh, there are different reasons. When, when we look at um, uh, Hezbollah, for example, uh, first, Hezbollah is not anymore a small party composed of radical clerics, like just as in the 80s. Today, it's a, it's, it's a real society, we would like to say, with a, a certain number of its uh, cadres, uh, coming from uh, higher middle class or professional liberal uh, profession, uh, liberal professions such as uh, lawyers, doctors, um, architects, etc. So there's there's a change when it comes uh, to the composition of its cadres and its uh, leadership. You can see this when it comes to the uh, its representation in parliament. Uh, its deputies have a very different uh, background than what was in the beginning of the 90s. So first of all, and the, the, the party became, as I said, nearly a huge society. Hezbollah is able to mobilize more than uh, 300 to 500,000 people in particular events. Uh, it's not only a political party, but it has its armed component that has been able not only uh, to some extent, and this is why a lot of the popularity came from to challenge Israel and to, to liberate south of Lebanon. But now it has also a regional um, 
uh, regional, um, it's, it's, it's able to reach a, a regional perspective on it. You see its massive intervention in Syria on the side of the, the Assad regime, or even sending particular troops, elite troops in Iraq uh, and uh, in Yemen. Um, and also the, the role of Iran and Hezbollah's relationship, how it evolved, but how it's until today a key uh, relationship, especially when it comes to Iran funding Hezbollah, which is hundreds of billions, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars until today. Um, so Hezbollah is not only today, uh, if you want, its influence is not limited to Lebanon, but to the whole region. And it, it makes it a very important political party to study and analyze. Yeah, it, it certainly does. I, I'm pleased you touched on Iran because I wanted to just ask you a little bit about the role of, of ideology within within this because you're clearly focused on a, a particular aspect which I think is incredibly important in understanding the evolution of, of Hezbollah. But but where does ideology fit into a political economy approach? And I'm, I'm thinking of the the ideology of resistance and and the the sort of the Iranian support the Velayati Fahi and and Indeed. and so on. No, no, indeed, you're totally right. I don't put aside uh, the issue of ideology, but ideology is not isolated from its political and socio-economic uh, um, environment. Sure, yeah. Uh, and therefore, it evolved uh, with it. Hezbollah is still very much linked to the Wilayat Fakih, as you mentioned, to Iran. It considers uh, the Supreme Guard of Iran as a not only as a more moral uh, leadership, but also as a political leadership. And this should not be put aside. But the clear link is the political, economic and military link that is uh, present between Iran and the Islamic Republic of Iran. Just as the way um, its Islamic fundamentalist ideology has been present since the 80s, Hezbollah is a creation. Uh, one of the main reasons why Hezbollah was created in the 80s was following uh, a Khomeini's discourse and understanding uh, of Islam by the sending of uh, Iranian uh, Pazdaran troops in Lebanon in the perspective uh, of the resistance against Israel, but not only of putting a base of the Islamic Republic of Iran in, in Lebanon. But when it comes to resistance, what is very interesting to see is that definitely Hezbollah has played a humongous role and a key role in the liberation of the south uh, of Lebanon uh, that led to Israel's um, uh, leaving the south of Lebanon in 2000. But we should not remember first that in, in the 80s, Hezbollah uh, attacked other resistant components of Lebanon, whether being Communist Party, uh, other nationalist parties. So, And today, the issue of resistance is not as... Uh, I'm talking about the resistance against Israel the key element in Hezbollah's discourse, rather seeing how uh, the, the battle against, for example, Takfiris group or uh, jihadist Sunni groups has become more important in its discourse, in the discourse of its official, than the resistance against Israel. It does not mean that Hezbollah would not play a role in any kind of resistance against Israel if Israel would attack uh, Lebanon. But you can see this, that there is a change or a change of focus for the moment, uh, being the largest threat being represented by Sunni jihadist um, element. And this could be also understood by the threats they receive and the, the attacks uh, that suffered Hezbollah within Lebanon. 
and yeah. not only uh, in Syria. So you can see that ideology uh, is obviously present, uh, Islamic fundamentalist ideology. It's also a very good weapon or tool to control society in which it lives in uh, through uh, patriarchy, through the control uh, of women's body, women, uh, laws pertaining, to, for example, to religious laws, control of uh, society, etc. It is a very important component of the way Hezbollah's hegemony is being um, spread throughout Lebanon with the tool of resistance as well. So to resume my thought, because we could speak about <laughs> ideology yeah. for, for hours, is that ideology is obviously present, but it evolves with the dynamics and development of its own socio-economic, political uh, um, environment, whether national and regional as well. Sure. And one last question on Hezbollah, if I may. That that evolution, I think, is is really interesting and really important because it, it then starts to allow you to to take stock of the the relations between Hezbollah and and say Syria or indeed Iran. And Hezbollah's increasing influence in Lebanon suggests that it might have a bit more influence vis-à-vis -vis these yeah. these these former sponsors or these these continued sponsors. So, where do you see the the relationship between Hezbollah and and Iran right now, given this sort of development of Hezbollah? I believe that even though Hezbollah is a Lebanese political party that its supporters are Lebanese, you cannot also put aside that the relationship between Iran and Hezbollah is still very close. It's, a, uh, it's nearly a, a form of a, a relationship of patron-client. And the fact that, firstly, the massive funding coming directly from the Supreme Guard of Iran, to, to, of the Wilayat to Iran, seven, several, several hundred million of dollars, the question of ideology we mentioned then. And for example, we've seen it as well in cases such as the war in Syria, they collaborated massively in intervening to save a regime that is considered allied to Iran and Hezbollah, especially when it comes to the transfer of uh, weapons from Iran to Syria to, to Lebanon. And a key ally in the region, uh, in, if you want, what we call the, the so-called Cold War between Iran and Saudi Arabia and different uh, Gulf monarchies. So the link is still very much present, even though there have been uh, developments and Hezbollah is not anymore the small uh, political parties from the 80s, but it's still very much dependent on its relationship with Iran. And another thing that you can see this close relationship is that um, Hezbollah's relation with various countries of the region is also very much dependent of Iran's place in the regional uh, scene and international scene. Sure. Um, and uh, Secretary General Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, changes his discourse according also to these developments. So it's a, it's a key uh, relationship. and does not mean that Hezbollah has some form of autonomy, but it is, until today, linked politically, economically, militarily, and as we said, ideologically uh, to Hezbollah, uh, to, to Iran. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. It, it's really interesting hearing hearing these reflections from a slightly different bent to what we what we're perhaps used to. Uh, I'd like to change track, Joe, and talk more about your your recent book, Syria After the Uprisings: The Political Economy of State Resilience. And I believe that that has come out in the past what six weeks, two months. Yes, indeed, July, I think. Uh, well, Mabruk, first of all, very thank exciting you. news. 
um, I've I've read samples of it that I found online while I'm waiting for for my copy to arrive, and it's it's fascinating. It's a really interesting approach to understanding the the uprisings. Can you tell those who who've not been been fortunate enough to read any of it as yet what you're trying to do in the book, please? So through the book, uh, which has been uh, work. I've been working on it nearly since the beginning of the uprisings, and therefore the title has been changing throughout the <laughs> years by the origins of the revolution to the origins of the revolution, counter-revolutions, and today uh, to the state's resilience. What I'm trying to show in this uh, in this book is understanding why the Assad regime has remained until today. There's various reasons for this. I explained the nature of the state, the patrimonial um, nature of the state, which and its particular relationship with its popular base uh, through tribalism, sectarianism, clientelism, uh, basically analysis of what is the Assad regime. Second of all, the place of Syria in the international and regional uh, political scene, if you want, in the in the imperialist uh, scene. Um, and while I also speak, a chapter is devoted to the, the rise of the, the popular movement from below, the way people organized, uh, if you want, the, the, the resistance from below against the Assad regime through the coordination committees and the origins of the, uh, its military component as well. I also show that one of the problems uh, with this uh, uprising was the rise of various opposition with a very much ex- exclusive discourse being the um, Islamic fundamentalist forces and jihadist forces, but also components of the opposition in exile. And our uh, latest example was um, the head of the, um, uh, the opposition in exile uh, called uh, Mr. Zoubi, um, uh, co- uh, praising Saddam Hussein uh, chemical attacks on Kurds recently. Um, so it shows you that uh, throughout this book, I, I want to try to show the the way this regime remains and what are in the last chapter uh, the current political economy of Syria, which is in a very very bad shape, and how the reconstruction is being used as a tool uh, to consolidate sure. um, uh, the regime. You've you've used this word quite a lot, Joe, and I I just like you to to. Um explain what you mean exactly by it it's one that that i use as well but i'm i'm sure that there are people who who use it without necessarily having the the real nuanced understanding of it what what exactly do you mean by regime well i think in the case in in some states you can speak about the relative autonomy of the state to some extent uh, regarding its uh, what we call uh, its its ruling elites but when I speak and I mention about the regime is that, for example, and when I, I mention the case of patrimonial regime, it means that the, there's a concentration of the economic, political and military powers in, in a particular group, being a, its family and its, uh, its, uh, uh, its different uh, components. For example, in the case, uh, I'm more talking about patrimonial and in, in this aspect, this, as I said, a concentration of this economic, political, military power that could be seen, for example, in Syria, the political power being controlled by Bashar Assad, the economic power being delivered to its direct cousin, Mahlouf, 
who people mentioned that he might have control nearly of uh, 60% of the economy of Syria through indirect and direct ways, while the military component was in the hand of the Assad, Makhlouf, and Shalish family, that is, all they are all linked. So this is the main difference, I would say, with, for example, when you speak of a, a state uh, in France, for example. Right. There's a different nature of the state that we have to acknowledge, if this makes sense. Yeah, it, it certainly does. And it, it strikes me that one of the themes that you're, you're looking at, perhaps not explicitly, but, but something that, that runs through uh, the parts of the book that I've read, is questions about sovereign power and the extent to which the Assad regime is able to exert sovereign power and the extent to which opposition groups are able to contest that power. I think throughout the uprising, firstly, the, 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 the sovereign power of the state, of the regime, was challenged massively by the movement from below. If you remember, in the summer of 2012, I mean, the opposition, various opposition armed groups were at the doors of Damascus while uh, half of Aleppo has been taken. A huge chunk of the territories of, of Syria were outside of the power of the regime. So you had a situation of dual power, or at least of attempts of dual power, which is a main characteristic of any kind of uh, revolutionary uprising throughout history. The main issue being the challenging of the state's power or the regime power. This has been, obviously, uh, the regime is a much better shape today than in 2012 in terms of control of territories. At the same time, the regime has lost many uh, of its kind of independence uh, regarding its uh, regional allies. It was much more independent of Iran prior to 2011 than it is today. Similar situation with Russia. In this perspective, the this, this, this same regime has lost uh, a lot of independence regarding uh, its, uh, its two main allies, Russia and Iran. As a, um, as a way to show this, uh, in the beginning of 2011, Syrian regime actually supported the, uh, the, the intervention of Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, and UAE uh, against the Bahraini uprising, while Iran was supporting, uh, obviously rhetorically, the uprising uh, in Bahrain. But many other examples could, could show this, such as the role of Syria to play as an intermediary role between Western actors and Iran prior to 2011. This, uh, this role has lost uh, its importance because Syria has lost a lot of its sovereignty to its two major allies being Russia and Iran. Similarly, when it comes to society, the, the aspect, the patrimonial aspects of the, the state has been much more reinforced as its popular basis has weakened considerably. And where does sectarianism fit into this then? We've heard a lot about the, the sectarianization of conflict, if you will. Where, where does that fit into this, this approach that you're looking at and that the political economy focus on regimes? Indeed, no, sectarianism has been a key component of uh, the Assad regime to, cr to, to crush the uprising and to divide it from within. Uh, one of its most important uh, elements or sectarian tool has been you know, massacres committed in particular regions where you find mixed population of Alawites and Sunni to create this kind of sectarian tension to prevent any kind 
of um, solidarity uh, between religious sects. It also used a particular discourse uh, trying to portray any kind of protesters as being uh, Sunni extremist uh, takfirist uh, jihadists, while at the same time the Assad regime was liberating from its uh, prisons the most important uh, jihadist and Salafist uh, uh, prisoners that would become heads of um, uh, armed battalions such as uh, Islam Army of Zahlu, Alush uh, family, Zahran Alush, and others. But it's true also that sectarianism in Syria did not start um, from 2011. Uh, historically, it's been present since the independence of the state, even before. Uh, but it's what is important to see is the production of uh, sectarianism from above. And the most important actor producing this kind of sectarianism has been the, the, the Assad regime since the 70s. Uh, and more particularly after the, the battle uh, at the end of the 70s and 80s, with uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. So this, for example, sectarianism through uh, a large components of the high military se uh, security services, the high military, uh, the, the Syrian army has been composed of Alawi personnel directly linked through tribal clientelist links to the Assad regime. But this does not mean that we should uh, characterize this regime as an Alawi regime. Otherwise, uh, I mean, Alawites are around 10 to 15 percent of the population in Syria. The uprising would have been finished early on. So it's a tool, not an end, to understand sectarianism. And similarly, the Assad regime was not the only producer of sectarianism. Large sectors of the opposition, notably the, the Muslim Brotherhood, has been uh, a sectarian actor and displayed sectarian policies since the, the 70s and 80s, wanting to present itself as the sole uh, representative of the Sunni community, while the Sunni community in Syria is the most diverse uh, through class, regional, uh, gender, uh, background that is very different. So it is it's to understand sectarianism as a product of modernity, as would say uh, Osama Magdisi, the Lebanese-Palestinian professor, and to understand its rise through a, a material understanding of society, and not saying, for example, if, if you remember Simon Barack Obama saying in 2014 and 15, saying basically the problems in Iraq are not the mistakes of U.S. policies, but of an old conflict between Shias and Sunnis yeah. 1,400 years ago, uh, which is very problematic. Therefore, you cannot understand the rise and developments of sectarianism, which is linked to political economic and social developments, and not because Arabs or Muslims have particular features they're born with. Sure, yeah, and I think that's such an important point to, to restate. You'll be pleased to know you're not the first person to, to make that point, but again, it's important to reinforce just how wrong Obama was on that point. Um, Joe, we've taken up a great deal of your time already, but I've got one final question for you, if I may. And... And that concerns the, the sort of the future of Syria. And you touch on this in the book. But where do you see Syria moving forward from here? As we sort of, as, as people talk about the end of the end of the revolution, the end of the uprisings, the end of the, the conflict. But of course, that's not exactly true. But where, where do you see things going? For the, the current moment, um, I'm not really optimistic about the situation in Syria. 
the the victory of the Assad regime uh, against the uprising has come at a very very high price. In terms, we mentioned it, I think, in introduction. Um, you have more than half of the population in Syria that is internally uh, displaced or uh, refugees. A huge amount of destruction. Uh, its cost of reconstruction uh, estimated to around 250 to 400 billion uh, US dollars. You have high level of unemployment. Without talking about the numbers of uh, people disappeared, whether in Assad regimes, uh, prisons, uh, the current economic situation in Syria, which is catastrophic, the rise uh, of even more important chronic capitalists uh, that were present after before. Uh, 2011, but have even grown in importance after 2011. Destruction of the Syrian economy, uh, high amount of people that left the country uh, now, are, and they're still uh, because of the, the economic situation in Syria and the threat of being, for especially for young men, being engaged in military service. So the situation is not is not good. Let's uh, say bluntly. Plus, the democratic and progressive aspects of the uprising have been completely eliminated. Uh, by the regime and by the, the Islamic fundamentalist forces, the division uh, between Arabs and Kurds is very important today as well in Syria. All these aspects make, uh, for, for me, not being very optimistic about the future. Nevertheless, there's been an experience that have been accumulated um, that is uh, is present in a certain number of books, what I, I try to do as well. Um, but also on websites, uh, for example, the, the creative Syrian memory websites is all kind of websites and, and literature that try to put forward all the experience accumulated throughout this uprising in terms of civilian resistance, resistance from below, um, solidarity uh, above sectarian differences. That is here, which is the main difference, I would say, that from the resistance from below in Syria in the 70s and beginning of 80s. We had important leftist and democratic uh, groups that uh, were leading uh, resistance against the regime through strikes, organization from below, that this memory has not been kept, which is the main difference that's from the 2011. And that the contradictions that, that were present at the beginning of the uprising are still very much here in Syria and had deepened the despotic aspects of the regime is still present. The socio-economic injustice throughout Syria's economy has uh, deepened. Uh, and you have the lack, even more, the lack of sovereignty of the Syrian regime. And you have seen this kind of um, um, frustration even among uh, supporters of the regime regarding the role of Syria, uh, of Russia and Iran within Syrian society, taking uh, particular sectors of the economy for their own sake, which has been criticized even by supporters of the regime. So the, the regime is facing huge contradictions that today it cannot uh, tackle. So this is a bit the sense of, if you want, hope that we have, but there is a need to rebuild uh, a, a democratic and progressive component uh, uh, of Syrian opposition That will take time, especially in a society that is very, very uh, tired. But I think the examples of Sudan and Algeria show that um, the cycle that started in 2011 in the region is not finished. It has huge 
uh, challenges, but also small hopes, I would say. Um, so, uh, as uh, uh, an academic and more uh, above all, a political uh, activist said in the past, Antonio Gabshi, uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will would be my motto. Well, on that optimistic note, Joe, thank you so much for, for giving up your time this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and and we'll have to get you on again sometime to talk about your more activist side of things and the blog that you run. So thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating and, and uh, I'm really looking forward to staying in touch. Thank you for this opportunity and invitation. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.